The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. I'm so encouraged today that I did not uh, cancel service. Like there was people that's kind of getting a lean here and a lean there, and I thought, man, I don't know. Like I, I just decided, well, I know I can make it up there, and, and Corey will probably be there, and, and we can hang out together, right? I'm so glad y'all came to join us so it's not me and him. <laughs> no, I love Corey to death. And, and no, it's encouraging to see you all here. And uh, we've been diving into this, this series, No More, No Less, based on solo scriptura. Um, that scripture is therefore the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, re- revealing infallibly what we must believe in order to be saved and all that we need to know in order to glorify God. And so, like, we, we looked at that and unpacked it, saw how we got our Bible, man. We talked about canonization, what the Bible says about itself, and how important that is in, in our day and age. And when we look at the Bible, okay, this is very important. When we look at the Word, um, and if you didn't get a chance to watch or, or be a part of last week's service, I'd highly encourage you to go and, and watch that sermon. It's so, so relevant to what's going on in our culture and even in our community today. But when we look at the Word and we approach the Word, there's three ways to approach it. And, and one is we look at the Bible and we say, man, that is the Word of God. It has been preserved for us throughout history and it is the Word of God. The second option is we look at it and say it is the Word of man. Like men wrote it, it's man's book, and, and they may have been writing about God, but it is the word of man about God. And then the third way is um, it's a combination of, of both. It's, it's both the word of God and it is the word of man. Now, as a body of believers, we believe in option one. Unapologetically, we look at the Bible and we say, man, we believe it is the word of of God that has been preserved for us throughout history. That is the classic evangelical view of the church throughout the centuries, since the early church. Like they viewed the word of God as the word of God. And we will look in the coming weeks, even the apostles themselves referred to the Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures often, they would search the Scriptures and compare what they were, um, uh, what Jesus had taught them And as the Holy Spirit was helping them to recall it, they would lay it against the filter of the Old Testament, and they uh, began to write the things and the letters of the New Testament, and they recognized them as the Word of God. Peter refers to Paul's writings as the Word. Paul refers to Luke's writings. And so we see that it's getting the um, apostolic authority, even in the early church, to teach us how we can trust what is the Word and what is not. And we learned that uh, why some books of the Bible are not included and canonized historically by the church uh, as the Word of God is because they, they don't teach. They're the same thing that the Word of God teaches. And so they they were ruled out. And the church, I, I want to say this, I meant to say it last week, what you have to understand about the canonization of Scripture is that it, when we say that, man, the church recognized this, um, this took time. This didn't all happen. It would, be, um, it, 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 would, it would be the wrong understanding to think that a group of men got in a room and they had all the manuscripts around and they were looking at them and say, well, uh, all right, let's take a vote. Who votes on this one? I like that one. Let's take it. 
And by committee that in there in that room, they decided that's not how it happened. It happened over time. It took time. And, and uh, most of the books were recognized by the early church fathers um, within the, the first century of the church, first generation Christians. Um, but before everything was canonized and during um, a, a council, and they, they said, no, these are the ones that did happen later, Okay. But they were recognizing as they looked at Scripture what had happened over the years, how they received the Word. And so remember that this is something that the church discovered and recognized and is witness to. It is not something the church gave birth to. And so when we look at this, we are option one, the classic evangelical uh, view believed throughout uh, church history is that the Bible is the Word of God. Now the Word of man and the Word of God Number three, that is the dangerous one, okay? I was kind of blown away as I started this series and to see what has happened in our community that is even being debated, even as this day is centralized around this. Now, I want to, I want to say something to you about the debate that is raging on right now. Like, here's what's going on, and, and it's that it is being veiled in homosexuality. Like, that's what it's wrapped up in. And let me say to you, it has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has no more to do with homosexuality than what we would say about premarital sex. Like premarital sex, homosexuality, both sin before God. This has nothing to do with that. So don't, like, don't get sucked into that trap of thinking that way because I think the enemy has really laid a trap. This is about how you view the Word of God. That is, what's, that is what is being debated right now is, is the Word of God the Holy Scripture of God, and can we adhere to it? Now, what is dangerous about approaching it as option number three and saying, well, it is the Word of God and it is the Word of man, because men obviously wrote it. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about that today. What is dangerous about that? Well, we must rely on scholarship to tell us what is the Word of God and what is the Word of man. And so a scholar has to look and he tells us, okay, this part is the Word of God and this part is the Word of man. And you can trust this as the Word of God and believe this and adhere to it. But this right here was about the Word of man and it was applicable for this day and it doesn't really apply it for our day. What's dangerous about that? Immediately, the scholar takes the place of God. That's what happens. So I become, I become one who begins to tell you guys what you are to believe as the Word of God from the Holy Scriptures, and what you are not to believe. Now, I like me and think me as a pretty good guy, but I would not trust me to do that. Like, on, on, and say, no, I'm going to tell you this part is not the Word of God. I'm going to trust that God has the ability to miraculously, and through the power of inspiration, uh, supernaturally enable men to write what He wants to be preserved. And so sometimes we scratch our head and go, well, how could God do that? Like, do you understand what we believe? Like, we believe that a dead man was dead three days and rose from the dead. Like, this is not a difficult thing for God. As a matter of fact, when we look at the Bible um, and, and we see it, it is a miracle of the Lord. So this is what I want to say as I'm, as I'm preaching through this. We do not idolize the Bible. We do not worship the Bible. Not at all. Like, we worship the God the Bible teaches us about. 
And we honor him. And so we love the word because the word teaches, about, teaches us about who he is, how, can we be, how we can be saved from our sin, and how we can walk in fellowship with him and bring glory to him by yielding our lives to him in obedience. And so we don't want to fall into that dangerous category of, of we're the ones deciding what is the word and what is not the word. Now, why is that so dangerous? Because we are sinners by nature. We have a sinful nature. And if we're beginning to try to use scholarship to look at what we are accepting and what we are rejecting, because we are sinners by nature, we will begin to weed out what we don't want to hear, all right? And so we erase the parts uh, of what God has given to guide and correct us. And so we begin to erase it. We say, and so, man, I, and I'll get into this. I have to watch myself, man. I just get, I get so fired up about this, Okay. But sometimes people say, well, what about polygamy? The Bible says about polygamy. Listen, everything that the Bible says, it does not condone. Like the Bible said that David committed adultery, but you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible that uh, it says, oh yeah, go have adultery, go commit adultery on your wife. It teaches us explicitly when we study the whole counsel of God's word that that's not right for us to live that way. And so everything that the Bible mentions, it does not prescribe. The Bible talks about the lies of Satan, but we know we are not to be a people who lie. The Bible talks about all kinds of things, but just because it mentions something, does it not mean that it is telling us that that is the way that we are to live? It is showing us all of the good parts and bad parts that human beings, uh, what, where they were at as they were following God, but it doesn't mean that they were uh, that the Lord himself was condoning it. And so you, you will often hear me say things, and, and this is where we're going today, is you'll often hear me say things like this, man, the Lord told me to, like the Lord told me to give you a call, like the Lord told me to uh, go and, and, and sit at, at Starbucks and have a coffee, and I just felt nudged to do that. So what do I mean when I say that, okay? Because we have to really understand clearly what's going on here, because if somebody comes up to you and says, um, the Lord told me to tell you that you are to quit your job, you should probably say, all right, bro, and never talk to that person again, all right? <laughs> uh, that, that is not what we're saying. Like that, I'm not saying that the Lord, I, I was sitting in my room, and all of a sudden God spoke, and I heard a voice, and he said to me to call somebody. But what I am saying is that as I yield my life to the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word, that God supernaturally will impress things upon me. He will lead me. And so I know that if I, if, the, if I feel like the Lord is nudging me and I say I, I feel like the Lord told me something, then generally it is, it is, a, it is, an, it is a leading of the Holy Spirit. Much like um, Philip when he was on his way um, walking and the Lord, like he felt a prompting of the Holy Spirit to go up and get close to the chariot. And then the next thing happened and the next thing happened. Well, as I'm looking at and thinking through when I'm saying something like the Lord told me to do something, the Lord is never going to tell me to do anything that contradicts what I know in the Scripture, okay? So when I use that, that kind of phraseology, what I mean is the Lord is nudging me. I, I'm feeling prompted. And if I ever feel a strong leading from the Lord, then the first thing that I want to do is I want to check it against the Word. And so Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So clearly, Jesus taught that we can hear His voice. So the question becomes, how does he speak? How do we know we're hearing the voice of the Lord? And that's, that's what I want to unpack for you today, is that Jesus speaks specifically through the Word and the Spirit, okay? 
So Jesus, the risen, resurrected Christ, and we could say Jesus, we could say Holy Spirit, or we could say God, because it's the Trinity. They're all the same but different, okay? And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus speaks to me specifically through the Word and the Spirit. The Word of God and the Spirit of God work together to speak to us. Without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a dead book to a person. Like, like it's no different than any other book. It's, it's a book. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, it begins to come alive. Without the Word as an objective guide, there is no protection from error. So I could say, man, anything I want to say. Because I'm, I'm saying, man, the Holy Spirit has given me that. Well, the age of revelation has closed. It is complete. That is, again, one of the reasons for understanding canonization and how we got the 66 books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is to realize that the age of revelation is complete. We have all that we need to know um, and expect the return of the Lord. And so the Lord is not revealing anything new. And that's why we look at the Mormon church and we say this is a false teaching. Why? Because they are saying they have heard a revelation, something is new. Well, that, the Bible doesn't say that that's supposed to happen. So we can immediately lay that over the filter of the Holy Scriptures and say this is off, this is heretical, we cannot follow into that direction. That's how the Bible is used as an objective standard of reality to protect us from going off into places of error. And so whenever you're like feeling like, man, I, I just wish, that, like sometimes people will say, I just wish that God would give me a revelation and show me what to do. And we have a desire to hear that. What we should desire instead is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. That should be your greatest desire. Your greatest desire should not be for God to specifically show you what to do. Your greatest desire should be that you have a clear understanding of the Word of God and that you have a love and a hunger for the Word of God and that the Holy Spirit is doing His job inside of you to help you understand the Word and for it to come alive in your life as Hebrews says, that it is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to um, separate the physical stuff from the spiritual stuff in our lives. And so what happens is that God reveals himself to us through two kinds of revelation. There are two kinds of revelation that God reveals himself to, to mankind. Historically, throughout the time of Judeo-Christian history, we can look and God has two specific ways. And so um, the first one is, is general and the second again is specific. All men receive general re revelation. There's never been a human being on the planet anywhere, and so sometimes we go, well, what about the people off in that remote village somewhere that don't have anybody? Like, how are they to know? General revelation. Like, there's, the, the Scripture is plain about this, man. The Word has an answer for everything in our lives. And so in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, look at what the psalmist says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. 
So God is saying to us, like, like the psalmist, God is using the psalmist to write this right here and tell us about general revelation, is that we can look at creation around us and begin to see that clearly there is a designer behind this thing that is telling us that, that there's something more to life, like that, that there's purpose. And, and in Romans, the New Testament equivalent of that passage, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that's what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's really important. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is, He will use nature to speak to people about His existence. And, and, and because of the way that we are created, that we are created, it's, it's called the Imago Dei. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And because we are image bearers of God, we can look at all that He has created, and our minds are made in such a way that we begin to think about it. We begin to reason, and we begin to ask questions. And if we will be honest about those questions, those questions will lead us to a search of who is this God. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. We are totally different than the animal kingdom. For instance, can you imagine a dove sitting on a branch? He's perched up there on the branch and he's just and he's thinking to himself, I wonder if the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth. And then an acorn falls and he watches it and goes, and wonder what caused that to fall, and why can I fly? No, you can't imagine that, because that's not what birds do, because they do not bear the image of God as we do. We reason, we think, we ask and ponder these questions about where did we come from, okay? Like the creation is designed just to call forth the glory of God. We communicate. Birds sing, no doubt, but they are not communicating at the level that we communicate. They are not thinking about things the way that we think about things. And so we have general revelation to speak to us that God exists. And if we will look at that truth instead of suppressing it, like men and women will hold it down and they suppress the truth um, and they fail to seek him out. Now, why don't people seek him out? Why do they suppress the truth? Because they know deep down in their heart of hearts that if they seek this God out and find him, they will have to bow down to him. That's why. And so men want to be God. Men want to be call the shots. Women want to call the shots. We want our own kingdom and queendom. We want to say how things go in our lives. We want to say how we spend our money. We want to say how we spend our lives and our careers. We want to say what we invest our time into. We want to say whether or not we want to be involved in um, club uh, uh, sports every weekend and not be in the house of God. We want to say that. So we will suppress it and say, this is what I'm going to do. And I become God in that situation, as opposed to yielding to the Word. And what does the Word teach us? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together with one another for, for the edification of the church. Like we, we see these things. 
And so we look at that and we go, okay, this is why people will not seek him out, um, because they know ultimately that they will have to bow down. And this is why Jesus said, if you want to find your life, lose it. But if you keep looking for it, you will never find it. And so like, if you keep looking for it by suppressing what I'm trying to say to you through nature and through um, specific revelation, you are never going to discover the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10, verse 10. And so that's, that's cool that general revelation speaks to anybody, even the far off tribe um, that, that, is, uh, that has never been ministered to from the gospel. And so here's the thing, though. General revelation cannot teach us about Jesus, about the cross, about salvation, about how to live our lives, like general revelation can't do that. And so to the guy who says, well, my church is outdoors. <laughs> Too bad, bro. You're never going to learn anything outdoors about how, what you're supposed to do to yield in obedience to God. I love the outdoors too, but it is not my church. I can have church out in the outdoors. I can worship the Lord when I'm in the outdoors, but it is not my church. My church is right here with God's people who challenge me, stretch me, encourage me, love me, help me to understand the truth, call me out when I'm in error. That's my church because it will do something in my life that helps me to yield to the Lord and bring glory to him as opposed to leaving me to myself and being the God of my own life. And so when we come to specific revelation, this is how we learn these things. And specific revelation is learned in three phases. This is so awesome, I love this. And so God, from general revelation, will call us, and then he will begin to speak to us through specific revelation. Well, what is specific revelation? Here are the three phases. The first one is history. Like we just look at it as history, and some have said it's his story. That's what history is. So we look at history, and what do we have? Well, historically, we have this, this story that God created Adam and Eve. And, and he, he told them to come together and, and be one, be united in marriage, be fruitful and multiply, and, and cleave to one another, and the two become one. And so we have the first, first marriage and the first family, and historically, that is what God has said to us. Historically, we know that Adam disobeyed God. Historically, we know um, through um, even oral history, it started, is that they would pass this down, and this is why God chose the Israelites. Why? To nail down this history. Why? so that he could have specific revelation. To who? The human kingdom. Why? Because he made them to reason. Because they think. They ask questions. They ponder about what? The general revelation that he has laid out before them and he has created for them to subdue. And they begin to ask the inner questions. And so here is the story. And he chose this one group of people. And we know that Adam disobeyed. And we know a prophecy was given that through the seed of the woman there would come a deliverer that would crush the head of the enemy that led them into this sin. We know that through history, there is a historical account of a guy named Abraham. And what was he told? He was told that he would be the father of many nations. And out of his family lineage would come the Messiah who would save the world. This was before Israel was even a nation. Like this small one dude received a promise in history that this would happen. Okay, And then we know that through history that Jacob and his 12 sons, they moved to Egypt through a famine that was supernaturally orchestrated by God. One of the sons had been sold into slavery. His name was Joseph. And miraculously, I wonder how it happened that he assumed to the top, second only to Pharaoh. 
And then God was allowing him to interpret dreams by which that's how he assumed that position. And then he made the nation of Egypt wealthy because he prepared them for the famine. His whole family, therefore, Jacob's family, moved to Israel in the land of Goshen and became shepherds. For the next 400 years, they would turn into from a family of 70 to a nation of over a million people. And God would use another miraculous individual in history that by the name of Moses, and he would grow up in uh, a Pharaoh's, under Pharaoh's, by Pharaoh's sister, and be led and trained and, and, and used of the Lord. And what happened is he grew up in Egypt, was incredibly trained, and he was the person God chose to lead the nation that used to be 70, a family of 70, and now is in excess of a couple of a million, couple of million, and they're led where? To the promised land. See the story? The story God is unveiling in history. And so God uses Moses, and then through Moses, we know that they become an actual nation. They set up a government, a law that God gives them, and through that law, they are taught to sacrifice animals. Why? Why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? Because those sacrifices were designed to do one thing, teach us that we could not please God and remind us that we were guilty. And the nation of Israel, that's, that's their whole purpose, is to, re, to remind all of humanity we're guilty and we cannot connect with God. And so what are they pointing to? They're pointing to the sacrificial lamb of God that would be slain before the foundations of the world. And in due time, Jesus came fulfilling all the messianic prophecies that were laid out where? In history. And then we, we see that he, he comes and he says, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah that you learned about since the time that you were brought up and, and, and promised to Abraham, I am the guy. Like, I am the one that will crush the serpent's head. I am the one that will remove the curse. And so God has given us the story of Jesus. And we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And then he started telling all of his followers that they were to go and wait and he would send the comforter to them and that they would go and they would take the gospel, the good news that God has become a man and died for the sins of the world so that their relationship that is broken, that they hear spoken to them through general revelation all the time. They can hear um, from God a message of salvation. They say and submit to God and yield to um, what he teaches in the gospel gospel and they can become right with him and instead of being enemies they become children of God and they're used and they look forward to the coming kingdom of which they are advancing as they live out their life here on earth and so that is the story and it is told in history and so we see all of this in history it is specific revelation here's the next phase this is very very important writing okay how do we know God has done all these things the same way that we know George Washington did what he did. You ever met George Washington? You ever seen him? Me neither. I trust the evidence of the spoken history and the written history of people that lived long before me. How do we know these people existed? It's written down and we read it and we learn from it. And so God uses um, uh, 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 the written word to teach us. And how has God done that? the Bible. So when we begin to attack the very thing that is the thing that teaches us about the thing that we say that is the most important that causes us to love, we are being foolish. It's, it's ridiculous. This is how we know about salvation, but we're starting to say that things about this thing we can't really trust. What? That is ludicrous, man. 
And so we look at it and we see that God has given us the word and it is the inspired writing. And why has he given it to us? So that we can read it and understand the history. (laughs) Just stop and take a breath and think for a moment. This book has been attacked. They have tried to destroy it. They have tried to eliminate it. And yet it remains the number one bestseller of all time. Not for a couple of years. All time. It is there. Why does it do that? Why? Because it is God's story that He has preserved for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might read through specific revelation and come to understand what He has done and yield to Him and be restored to a right relationship, which is exactly what the history teaches us all the way back in Genesis. What is all of the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about the coming of the Messiah so that we can know how to serve him, how to please him, how to yield to him. And then the the third phase is individual revelation to our mind and heart. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in which our minds are opened to understand and receive what, what is written. And so we're gonna, the, the remainder of our time, I'm going to unpack that for you, is that the, 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 the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, begins to reveal to our minds and our hearts what is written in history so that we can know Him. Now, when that happens, the Bible is no longer academic, but we hear God from it. Okay, that's, that's the way this thing is supposed to work. And so can God speak otherwise? Yes, and he has. Like he called Moses otherwise, okay? But that is not the way that we're, like he normally speaks. And he could still speak that way today. But let's just suppose you and I are in a room somewhere and we're working and all of a sudden we hear a voice. Go feed the hungry. And you say, I think that was the voice of God. And I say, I think it was Shay playing a practical joke on us. Like, how do we know? How would we know if it was the voice of God or not? If he's telling us to do something. By laying it against the word. That's how we know. And so, like, that's, that's the way God has given for us to be able to hear from him, understand what he is saying, and use the impression of the Holy Spirit in making sure we're checking what we're hearing against the scriptures that have been given to us specifically so that we might know him. Remember when Paul went in and he was teaching, and the Bereans said, it said before they would accept what he said, they went and studied the scriptures. They were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. Okay, so here's the deal. Point number two, the Bible is God-breathed. This is extremely important. And this is where we get our position as a church, as a body of believers, that we believe historically. Like since the time of Jesus, this is what the church has believed. This nonsense that is being promulgated right now is recent history. Like if you start buying into that, you're buying into something that has only been accepted in recent history. But for two millennia, the church has been right here. Like you can study church history right here. Right now, the church is right there. Like an evangelical church that has a high view of Scripture, right there is where it's at. That's where we're at. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. What does it say? If you're taking notes, first of all, you should write down the word all. All. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. This word God breathed, the, the New International Version uh, translates it God breathed. Some translations translate it inspired, but that's not really the best tra- translation of it because inspired sort of has an, a, a man-centered idea. It sort of influences us that way. The actual um, Greek word is theonoustos, and it literally means theo, theos is God, noustos is bread or breath, sorry. And so it means, the word means God breathed. And so when we look at as it in the traditional translation of inspiration and being man-centered, that's not what the Bible was saying. That would be like, I was inspired to write this song, okay? And so when we say that we're inspired, what we mean is that we're mentally stimulated to do something. And so if we say and understand it in our, our definition of the term inspiration, um, that the men were mentally stimulated to do something, it's very easy to arrive at it's the word of God and man, or it's the word of man only. Because we're saying, man, they, they, they were mentally stimulated to do it. But that's not what we're saying. That's not what Paul is saying. More importantly, the apostle Paul who encountered Jesus firsthand, whom was written most of the New Testament, whom we understand how to live as followers of Jesus. This guy knew him. Peter also, we're about to look at a quotation from Peter. He knew him. He was friends with him, the leader of the church. And and when we see what Paul is saying, and he declares that Scripture is God-breathed, he is emphatically saying that the Scripture is the product of divine operation. He's saying that God is behind it. All Scripture, it comes from God. And so we go, well, wait a minute here. Um, Like, it's different. It's written by different people. Well, I think that what helps me understand it is we have some some English words um, that carry this idea of noustos, like the word pneumonia. It has its root in that. It's a breathing disease. Um, my favorite one is pneumatic, pneumatic tool. Amen? I like pneumatic tools. I've been fascinated with pneumatic tools since the first time I heard one. And I have some pneumatic tools. And, and, and when I look at the pneumatic tools, it's the same word, pneuma. Um, and, and the reason that is used is because it's air coming in to make the tool work. The, the tool works because of the compressor that is totally outside of itself. Here's the tool. Here's the compressor. You can pull the trigger on your impact wrench all you want, but until you turn that compressor on and hook that hose up, it is not doing anything. And so that's, that's what's happening in God's breathe. Let's look at what Peter says about the Scriptures. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So here's what's going on is that God is using different men in different times. And this is, again, is what makes the Bible so miraculous. Is that, that one guy is writing thousands of years before the other guy, but they're basically saying the same kinds of things. That, that God's um, story to man is redemption through Jesus. Now, did they say Jesus? Well, some of them did. Some of them talked about Emmanuel and what his name would be, be, uh, be and where he would be born and so on and so forth. But they're all telling a story. Even the ones who are writing about um, the sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament. They're getting us ready for the great sacrificial lamb that would come and he would be the perfect sacrifice that they could not come up with that would take away the sin of the world. And so all of them are writing about the same thing at different periods of time. And their personalities are used in the writing because they're people. But get this, there are guys all over the country right now preaching, right? And they don't all sound like me. And some of them will sound completely different. Some of them probably won't um, be as redneck as me, right? And some of them will be totally different than I am. And they will sound different. But they're saying the same thing. And so the personality is often used to communicate a message. That's what's happening, okay? And so that's why we have some of it is poetry. Some of it is apocalyptic literature. It's about the future end times. Some of it is wisdom literature. Some of it is narrative. Some of it is is a historical account of what actually happened. But it is all designed to do the same thing. So in my toolbox, in drawer drawer number three, you open it up and you will find four pneumatic tools. There is an impact wrench. There is a, uh, 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 an impact ratchet. There is an impact chisel. And there, um, well, there's not anymore, but there used to be an impact sander, my favorite one. I just love the way it sounds, man. Okay? They all sound different. They all are used for different jobs. But they all get their power from the same source. And that's what's going on with the Bible, is they're all like being infused with the power of God to write for us what? The story, the written history that gives us the specific revelation of who God is and how we are to follow him. And so here's here's the third point. (laughs) You must be born again to get it. Like you cannot get it unless you're born again. We, so what we have is revelation and inspiration is what, I'm, what I've shared with you today. We have the revelation of God, the inspiration of God. The third uh, most important word is regeneration. Revelation, inspiration, regeneration. Um, you must be born again in order to get the word of God. Jesus said that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 16, which I have here for you, Paul tells us the person without the Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. I guess what that word Spirit is, like we have that same pneuma going on there. So the pneuma that wrote the Word is the pneuma that works inside of me that is to carry the Word and helps me to understand the Word. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying. So if a person is not born again, they look at the Bible and they scratch their heads and they don't, I don't get it. Like, or they just criticize it or they're skeptical of it or they value it as historical. They might even say, I believe in Jesus, but they may not know Jesus. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of times that I scratch my head when I see a person who says they know Jesus and they start doing things that I know specifically or contradicting the word. I start to go, does this guy know the Lord? Why am I doing that? Am I doing it because I want to cause a wedge between me and that person? Absolutely not. I'm doing it because I know that the Spirit of the Lord is confirmed in me that, that what the Word says, and I see that among a lot of my brothers that I no doubt know have the Spirit of the Lord too, and we are in agreement about something, and we can't hardly agree about anything. But yet we can agree about this. Why? Because we are yielding in obedience to what we know to be divine revelation from God that the Spirit has written and now he has awakened us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're born again, and the Spirit lives in us. We're yielding, and we know him. Okay, so we can't understand it unless we know him. I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 24. This is not going to take me very long. And don't worry, you don't have to go figure out some place to eat anyway. We're eating downstairs. Amen? Are y'all with me today? Yeah. All right, come on. So Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 33. Let's, let's read this incredible story. Right? This is a great story, man. What a story. Um, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. And like the church hasn't set on fire yet. They're still trying to figure out what happened. They're in hiding because they think some of them have found the tomb empty, but they don't even know exactly what it means. And it says that now that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village. And when I say disciples, I don't mean apostles. I just mean people who were followers of Jesus. And that two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. This is the resurrected Christ. And somehow, miraculously, they could not recognize him physically. And so it says that they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along the road? <laughs> well, you talk about a setup, man. All right. So they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these last days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped. We had hoped. Okay? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that, he had been, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but them, him they did not see. Okay? So basically, Cleopas is saying, man, like we were so excited, this dude Jesus, we thought he was a Messiah. But then they killed him on the cross. They put him in a tomb, man. And there's a bunch of women running around saying he's not in the tomb. And I don't know what to make of it at all, but I know dead people don't get up. That's what's going on. And this is what, <laughs> what it set up. Jesus said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart 
to believe all the prophets have spoken. Who is Jesus referring to? The prophets. Who are the prophets? The one that wrote the Old Testament. So what does Jesus think about the word? He thinks that we should trust the word. And we'll see Jesus does this over and over. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Even Jesus is opening the scriptures. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And then, so they're all in the room. Now they go back. They, they didn't even go look at the empty tomb that was talked about before. That's where they were in their faith. But now Jesus has specifically gone to them. The lights have come on. They go back to the room. And it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And there they were, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why? Are you troubled and why do doubts uh, arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. And when they saw him eating food, they knew he was like them, right? Like they were fellowshipping and food with him. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There he does it again. Over and over and over. Then he opened their minds so that they could what? Understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That's God the Spirit that will come. So what we have here is Jesus, or Luke is teaching us through his account in the written word, specific revelation that God has used and preserved about the story so that he could illuminate in our minds and hearts how step number three works. First of all, it always starts with the Word. In verse 32, what happens? Jesus opened the Word. What am I doing right now? I'm opening the Word to you. This is how it always happens. Jesus opened the Word. Verse 31, their eyes were opened. Okay? That's what it says. Their eyes were opened to see him. And then in verse 45, their minds followed. That's what just happened in that account. You, you, you'll see all of those words that are used. And so the Word of God and the Holy Spirit come in to illuminate. So like every time I preach, man, one of the things that I pray is, Lord, illuminate the minds and the hearts of the people who are listening. 
So as I preach the word, if the Holy Spirit is trying to turn it on, and you're doing one of two things, you're receiving it because you've already got it, and it is encouraging you, or you are sitting there like the Romans were, and you are suppressing it in Romans. Hold it down, man. Hold it down. If you let it come up, bro, guess what? You're going to have to bow down to it. And I say, amen. The Lord is after you. He's trying to get your heart. Why? Why? Because he wants you for himself. And the devil is whispering a lie to you to suppress it and hold it down. You'll lose everything if you submit to this. And the Lord has told you, men, you will find your life if you will come to it. I will explain everything to you, and the lights will come on. And this is what we say the illumination starts happening, and we have the mind to understand Christ because we receive the Spirit of Christ. And so here's, here's the big idea of today's talk. Has Jesus lifted the veil for you? Because he's lifted the veil for everyone. And, and man, like, even as I stand here and preach today, it is all about the veil being lifted for me. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, my desire to preach or anything like that. It, it, it has everything to do that the Lord has lifted the veil for me, and I have seen him as he is because the Holy Spirit has allowed me to do that. And so that's, that's what we mean by being born again. And, and I love the story, man, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Only three of them. He takes them up on the mountain. And while they're up there, it says that he became brilliant. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. He was shining brilliantly. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appeared there talking with him. And Peter runs up and says, oh God, it's, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Should we build three shelters? And all of a sudden, a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Follow him. Like, like they, and they bowed face to the ground, man. Boom, they knew they were in the presence of God. And then Jesus comes and evidently puts his hand on their shoulders, tells them to get up, and all of that is gone. And he tells them, don't tell anybody what you saw until after I've risen. So they had to hold it in. What was going on? What was going on is that for these three men at this particular juncture in history, the robe of Jesus' flesh was lifted. And they saw what is known as the Shekinah glory of God. The same glory that Moses saw in the Old Testament. And these are three men who were used as pillars in the church. And so they were allowed to see this. And they were allowed to speak about it after the resurrection. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about their testimony that has written history serving as specific revelation that the Holy Spirit might come in to our individual minds and hearts and open our eyes up that we might receive Him and the veil be lifted. He would change your life. Don't hold it down. Like if Jesus is trying to lift the veil, let the word do its work on you this morning. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.